Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 15. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as is written in Isaiah the prophet. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Thank you guys for being here this morning. I, I think there is something, I think the Bible tells us that there is something unique and special about God's church gathering together as God's church. And I think we see it throughout scripture, starting with the people of God, certainly starting at least with the people of God gathered at Mount Sinai and God's presence there. Uh, we see Jesus telling his disciples, when, when two or more of you are gathered together, there I am in your midst. We see in Revelation that, that we'll be resurrected physically in physical bodies in a new heaven and a new earth where God will dwell physically with us. And so I think that there is something that perhaps today in our moment in history and time, we've lost about the importance of the church, the people of God actually gathering together as the church to worship God, to uh, do the things that God has asked us to do together as a church. And so I'm, I'm uh, happy to see you all here. Um, indeed, I know maybe it takes a little risk to come on a snowy day like today, unless you can walk right? Then maybe it's frostbite that's a risk, right? We still drove. You still drove. <laughs> but uh, it's interesting. We start the book of Mark and we see that God himself first took the risk to come and actually physically be with us on earth. And I think that there is a significance to that reality. So uh, he loves us that much. And it's Valentine's Day. So segue. Uh, that was smooth, I'm sure. Um, it's Valentine's Day. I've never been a fan of Valentine's Day. I don't know if you like Valentine's Day or not. I've never been a huge fan. If, 
If you have a significant other, um, you know, then you have pressure, right, to, to, to do well on Valentine's Day for your significant other. Some of you husbands did well this morning, some others maybe not. If you don't have a significant other, then it's like a real bummer, right? Like, oh, woe is me. And, and then as soon as you have a significant other, then you're like, oh, I hate Valentine's Day. Why do I have to do So it's, you know, you, you kind of get the bad side no matter what your situation is. But I can remember what it was like 18 years ago. I was thinking about this. 18 years ago was the last Valentine's Day I had where I did not have a significant other where, before I knew Amanda. And I remember feeling very alone. Even though I don't like Valentine's Day, I remember feeling very alone. Uh, having a sense of longing, right? Waiting for something, but not knowing, not knowing that I was only six months away from meeting the woman of my dreams, right? From meeting my future wife, the, the best person, the most wonderful person I'd ever meet in my entire life. Not knowing who that would be, not knowing what she'd be like, not even realizing the ways in which who she is would be what I need. That who she is would fill certain gaps in me that God would ordain it to be so, to work like that. And I wonder how many of us have been waiting for something, longing for something, or how many of us know what it's like to be in that place where we are waiting for something or longing for something. You may not even realize that this is the case. Have you ever been doing a task at your house, a chore, a, a normal thing that you do? And maybe it, you do it in a particular way for years and years and years until someone in, in conversation just kind of coincidentally says, oh, uh, you don't use such and such tool or you don't use such and such appliance to do that? You're like, no, I, I, what is that? Tell me what this tool is. And then you get that tool and you go to do said task and you're like, oh my goodness, this is the tool of my dreams. This is the thing I've been needing all of these years. I didn't even know I needed it. And now this job that I've been doing, it's so difficult. Now it's so easy. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. Sometimes you don't even realize the thing you've been missing until you discover said thing. I want to tell you this morning, as we start the book of Mark, Jesus is who you've been waiting for. Jesus is who you've been waiting for. If you aren't a believer, I want you to know that. If you are a believer and you think, well, Cody, I already have Jesus. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. Jesus is who I've been waiting for, you know, yada, yada, yada. I get that. Uh, I've been a believer for a long time. It's time to move on to something else. Isn't there more? No, there's not anything more. You just need more of Jesus. That's what you need. I suggest to you that it's more of him that you need more of him than you think you actually need of him. I suggest to you that there may be some areas in your life 
I might be so bold. I think I can be so bold as to say there is areas of your life where you need Jesus in that area. And he's, you're not allowed, he's not there yet. You've blocked that area of your life off to him. And you may not even realize that you're doing it using some other means to try to fill that spot when he's been what's been missing all this time. As we start this eight-week series in the Gospel of Mark, we'll start today, we'll end on Easter. I want you to see throughout this series that Jesus isn't just some guy. He's not even just like a really special guy, a really good teacher. No, Jesus is everything. He's everything. On Sundays, we're going to skim over the book of Mark. I hope that you're reading it. I hope that you would read it over these eight weeks uh, yourself. I hope that you are uh, uh, getting together with a core group, two other people walking through the gospel of Mark with them. If not, it's not too late to start. But for today, as we introduce the book, I want you to understand a few things about the gospel of Mark in particular. The Gospel of Mark is written most likely to the Roman church, to Gentile, primarily Gentile believers in Rome. The Jewish Christians knew and understood that they had been waiting for a Messiah. They might have missed who Jesus was, but they at least knew they were waiting for something. But these Gentile believers, they didn't fully grasp all of that. They, They may not have fully grasped that whole thing Though in reality, they indeed were waiting as well. If you remember last week as we were closing up the first part of Genesis, and we were in Genesis chapter 12, and it said that through Abraham would come one who would bless all the families of the earth. And so all the families of the earth, every kind of people, they were waiting for this Messiah that would come through the people of Israel And they just didn't realize who it was that they were waiting for yet. But I want you to understand as you read the book of Mark that it's not a biography like in the modern sense. If you are a reader and you read a biography of of a a person who's lived in history, um, oftentimes what you'll have is you'll have this very full picture of their life from birth to death and, and a lot of like, commentary into their inner life and what their thoughts were and and how they reacted and things. But that's not how Mark is writing this book. This isn't just like a biography, like modern terms. And we shouldn't think of it in those, in that way. We shouldn't impose our thought of modern biography onto Mark's style of writing because it just won't work. Instead, it's more like a docudrama, if you will. Mark is pulling snapshot scenes of Jesus' life and he's arranging them in such a way that you would understand who Jesus was and what his purpose is in coming. His his, uh, job, Mark's job, isn't to give you this full picture, this comprehensive view of Jesus as a person and, and his life. His job is to, to tell, make a, a very specific point to you. Today, in these first 15 verses, which are sort of a prologue to the book, I want to point your eyes to two big questions which set the stage, though they won't be completely answered today. I want to prime them 
Because I think they're questions that we need to ask ourselves as we go through the book of Mark, and especially as we go through the first half of the book of Mark. Those questions are, who is this Jesus? And what is he about? Who is this Jesus and what is he about? Most of the first half of the book of Mark is going to be about that. The second half is going to be more about how he's about what he's about. But the first half, who is Jesus? What's he about? So let's pray as we jump into the text. Father, in a world that is filled with, un, uh, with changeable things, your Christ, your word alone remains unshaken, God. Know that we would place all of our hope and all of our security on these firm foundations, abiding in them through every changing season of life. For all our mercies come through Christ, who's designed and purchased and promised and affected them. How sweet it is to know and be near him. When we see the worst part is not the wrong we do to one another, God, but that we turn our backs on you so often and on your will. But thank you, Jesus, that you came. Thank you that you came to be a mediator for us. God, you have our hearts in your hand. Form them to the pattern of your word and the image of your son. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So at the very start of this book, Mark has, makes this statement, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, I want you to understand, maybe you knew this, but Christ, it's not like Jesus' last name, okay? It's not like, well, Jesus is his first name and Christ is his last name. It's a title. It's a title for Jesus. And it means anointed one, and we often translate it Messiah. It's someone who is set apart by God for a special purpose, a special service to him. And son of God is a term that was used often in, the Old, Te- in Old Testament prophecy for the people of God. And so the people of God would be called sons of God. These are the sons of God. Especially when they were referring to, or when a prophet was referring to the people of God around the Exodus. And so here Mark is saying Jesus is the one man. This one man, Jesus, is the true people of God, the Son of God. But there's more to who he is. We didn't get this quote from the book of Isaiah, right? Mark is saying this prophecy is about John the Baptist. He's preparing the way for this this Son of God, this anointed one, this Christ. But the, but the passage in Isaiah, if we go back to there, it's actually referencing back to Exodus and to ideas about the Exodus from Egypt. And so Isaiah is saying that one day, one day there will be a new Exodus like there was an old Exodus. And Jesus, the true Israel, is going to go through the wilderness of this life just like the people of God once went through the wilderness. And because he does this, this son of God, this true Israel, will deliver and lead a new Israel, a new people of God, 
people that are defined not by their ancestry from Abraham, but by their faith in Christ as Abraham had faith. And he will lead them from slavery through a new exodus. This new Israel is made up of Jews and Gentiles. And Jesus is the deliverer you never knew you needed. But there's more. John the Baptist says that it says John the Baptist is to prepare the way of the Lord. Lord here, it's a word that means owner, master, ruler, authority. What he's saying is this anointed deliverer, this Messiah that has been prophesied years in advance, he is the king. John baptized people who repented of their sins. But the meat of this king's message is this. Or the meat, I should say, the meat of John the Baptist's message was this. The long-awaited Messiah is on his way. The king is coming. For Roman believers, this would have been equal parts of breath of fresh air as it is confusing, right? For Roman believers who lived... So directly in the shadow of human rulers, in, of human Caesars, who oftentimes persecuted them as Christians. This idea that there was a king coming, that, that a king had come to deliver them, I'm sure would have been equal parts fresh air and, and confusing. And, you know, they would have said, man, I lo- I would, I'd love a different king. I love a deliverer king to deliver me from this oppression. In the passage here, it says this king is mightier than John the Baptist ever was. He's more worthy, far more worthy. And his baptism isn't just with water, but with the Spirit. Yep, the Holy Spirit. He doesn't just point us towards God. John the Baptist pointed the people towards God. No, Jesus would do something more. He would actually bring the presence of God to us. Whatever details about Jesus, whatever details about who Jesus is that we're going to discover throughout Mark, we know this. He is God in the flesh. He is the summation of all of the Old Testament He's the hope for all people. And no one else compares to this king. And so, at this point, I think there's a question that we need to consider. Who is your king? Who is your king in your life right now? Who is the authority in your life? And perhaps a king is a bit of a foreign concept to us, but I think we get the basic idea. A king has an area of rule, and inside that area is a throne, and he sits on that throne, and from that throne he makes decisions about what will or won't happen in the area of his rule, right? The most basic sense, that's a king. So for you, if your life is a country... Who sits on the throne of your heart? 
Who's king? It's easy for us to say, oh, Jesus is king, of course. Yes, Jesus is king, but is he really? I think about this. A king, a king's authority is absolute, right? A king doesn't come and ask his people if he can do something. A king doesn't come and ask his people, hey, hey, would you do this? I'd really like it if, hey, I, I think it'd be nice if you did this, and that'd probably be a good thing for you to do. Would you do it? I'll give you something if you do it. That's not what a king does, right? He says it, and people obey, period. Whether they like it or not, whether they want to or not, the king commands, and the people do. And Jesus doesn't want to be admitted into your throne room. He doesn't want to be even your top advisor. He's not like your top choice for the ca- your cabinet or something, you know? Hey, Jesus, I'm, 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 on, my, I'm, on, I'm on my throne over here, and, but, but you're like my, my top guy, my top advisor. Please give me, give me advice all day long. I really want it. Could you tell me what to do? No. If you hold any veto power at all whatsoever in your life, Jesus is not on the throne. You are. If you hold any veto power at all, even if you think, no, if Jesus tells me to do it, I'll do it. No, if you are on the throne and you hold any veto power, you are in rebellion to the king. I want you to understand that. If I come and sit on the throne and I tell the king, oh, no, you're still the king. Tell me what to do and I'll tell everyone to do it. The king is like, no, you're sitting on my throne. That is rebellion off with you. It's not good enough. He's mightier than you or I. We are not worthy to stoop down and untie his sandals. We don't come to him. He sends his spirit into us Jesus has come for the throne and nothing else will do I want you to understand that when Christ comes into your life he's come for the throne that's what he's come for so is Jesus your king similar to the first question we've got to wrestle with what is this king about In verse 15, he makes it clear. He's come to inaugurate the kingdom of God. Kings have kingdoms, right? The kingdom of God at its most basic is the reign of God, the relationship of the king to his people, right? We were just talking about that. The relationship of the king to his people isn't the people sitting on the throne and the king coming and asking something. It's the king sitting on the throne telling his people what to do. And there are two events that reveal, begin to reveal what 
his kingdom is about. First, we have his baptism, the baptism of Jesus by John. Now, you might say, why is Jesus being baptized for the repentance of sins? I thought Jesus never sinned, and you'd be right in saying Jesus never sinned. In Matthew's account of this scene, we get a little bit bigger picture. There it says, Jesus says that he must do it to fulfill all righteousness. You see, as the true Israel, as the true Israel, Jesus is identifying with Israel, going through the water and then soon into the wilderness, right? And in this moment, something unique happens. It says that the heavens were torn open. The word there is like literally torn apart. And the kingdom of God is breaking into the earth through Jesus as God says, this is my son, whom I am well pleased. Jesus is identifying with us sinful humanity. It's opening a loop that he will close at the end of the book when he finally does away with that sin. But then Jesus goes and he's led by the Spirit into the wilderness and he's tempted by Satan. And Mark's account of this story is really short. If you've read the other Gospels, you know there's a ton of dialogue between Satan and Jesus. But Mark, does he leaves all of that out. He, he's not concerned with all of that. He's not even concerned with, with drawing a conclusion. In fact, he never even says that Jesus overcame the temptation, does he? So what's Mark playing at? What's his, what's his point here? The point, I think, is this. Mark's trying to show us that there are two kingdoms. You thought there were a lot of kingdoms, you know? You thought there was like Jesus' kingdom and Cody's kingdom and your kingdom and, and someone else's kingdom, but there isn't. There's only two kingdoms. One is good and one is evil. And these kingdoms... They cut across every human category, class, ethnicity, gender, nationality, whatever. They, they cut across all of them. One is God's kingdom, and the other is everything else. More specifically, one is God's kingdom, and the other is Satan's. Alexander Solzhenitsyn had it right when he wrote, the line separating good and evil passes both through states, nor, nor between, not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart. Mark is telling us that God's kingdom is breaking through in Jesus, but Satan's kingdom is trying to come against it. At the very basic, the battleground is each of our hearts. Will we receive Jesus and his kingdom, or will we rebel and sin? This is the tension that's opened up here in Mark 1. This is the, the, the setting of the table. The, this is what it is. That Jesus has entered into. And what it is that Jesus will deal with, but it won't be resolved until the end. If you say, Jesus is my king, 
friends, then you must, you must receive his kingdom rule. Whatever he says, that rule may be. First John 2 says this, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. If we say that Jesus is king, but we don't care about his kingdom, we are either believing that, A, he won't enforce his rules, which makes him unjust, or B, he can't enforce his rules, which makes him impotent. But either way, we're making him out to be a very bad king. But what did John the Baptist say? John the Baptist said, no, 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 no. Jesus isn't impotent. He's mightier. He's not unjust. He's exceedingly worthy, John the Baptist said. So the only other option when we do this is that we are not part of his kingdom. We might call Jesus our king, but in fact, we're in Satan's kingdom. 1 John 3 continues, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. You see, the mark of Satan's kingdom is simple. It's rebellion. It's rebellion. We call this rebellion sin. Sin is defined by Jesus, by his word. It must be because rebellion can't happen without recognizing that there should be, that there actually is a true king whom we are rebelling against. A true king who sets the standard for how we ought to live. And that's why Isaiah prophesied a new exodus from slavery to sin. That's why John the Baptist was about the repentance of sins. That's why Satan tried to tempt Jesus to sin. But even as Christians, we know we still sin. Right? And so, as long as this battle wages between these two kingdoms, we're always stuck in the middle. That's why Jesus' words in verse 15 are so important. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. You see, the interesting thing the opposite of, of this kingdom of rebellion, the opposite of this kingdom of sin, is not simply unsin. I want you to see this. The opposite of Satan's kingdom of rebellion and sin is not just unsin. Sometimes we make it out to be that. Just follow the rules and you'll be okay. No, you can follow all the rules and white knuckle it your whole life and die and go to hell. The mark of God's kingdom turns out to be repentance and belief. That's the opposite of rebellion and sin. Repentance and faith. It turns out, if I say Jesus is king, but keep sinning, I'm not in his kingdom. And if I just try to not sin without repentance and faith, then I'm not made him king either. I've only made myself king as I try to tell myself that I can do it on my own. But you can't. That's the point. That's why Jesus came. You need to deliver. You need not just a baptism of water that John the Baptist gives, but you need the Spirit of God living in you, changing you, transforming you, delivering you. 
See, that's the fundamental difference between those two. The Spirit actually sanctifies us from our sin. Paul says in Galatians that the Spirit helps us to not do the sins that we want to do. Any of you ever felt that way? You've got sins that you, you, you wish you didn't do, but, but there's also part of you that wants to do them. Paul says in Galatians, no, the Spirit empowers you to not do those things that you want to do. And it all starts with this, repent and believe. So what are, what are those? What is repentance and faith? Repentance comes from the Greek word. In English, we translate it into metamorphosis, right? It's a change of mind that results in a change of action. When you repent, you admit what is. You have to start with what is. You have to start with confession of sin. It's just like, it's just like Google Maps can't tell you how to get to point B until you tell them where point A is, right? Google Maps can't tell you, hey, if I want to get to Cider Hill Family Orchard from my house, and I, but I don't tell them where my house is, it ain't going to give me directions, right? And so it is with repentance until you confess where you actually are right now. This is, this is my sin. That's where it starts. And then repentance is, a, is about this turn that happens. It's, it's like the, the word carries this idea of an 180 degree turn. You're going this way, you turn around and you go that way. It's like the GPS of your life starts to tell you, uh, take a U-turn at the next opportunity, right? Have you ever missed your turn and your phone starts telling you, uh, the next opportunity, take a U-turn. And you're going, like, I don't see any opportunities to take a U-turn here. Jesus says, no, I, I give you an opportunity to take a U-turn. But it doesn't stop there either. You have to go to something. You admit where you are, you turn around, and you have to go towards something. And that's where belief comes in. You've got to have the right object in view that you are pursuing, and that object is Jesus. When we sin, what we're essentially saying in that moment is, I trust Satan's kingdom, not Christ. The prophet Malachi, he picks up on this same passage that we see in verses 2 and 3. He says, the Lord is coming. But when he comes, who will be able to stand? And I don't know about you guys, but sometimes I think, man, I'm so sinful. And if and after all these years, I just keep wanting to do these things I know I ought not to do. And when Jesus comes, how will, how will anyone be able to stand? Who hasn't rebelled? But... Malachi also says that when Jesus comes, he will come like fire that refines and soap that cleanses, and he will purify and he will refine, and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Belief, belief in the gospel, belief in the gospel. And I want you to understand what the gospel is. The gospel is good news. It was the word that was used for news of a king's victory on the battlefield, and our king has won the victory. But what's different about his is he's won the victory for those who are rebelling against him. 
The king came to suffer to save his enemies and make them his people. And it starts with repentance. Laying down our kingdom, what we think is our kingdom, for his. And that starts with us realizing who he is and what he's about. Jesus is what we need above everything else. Jesus is what we've been waiting for, whether we realize it or not. That's what, that's what I needed to learn all those years ago on my last lonely Valentine's Day, right? It's also what Amanda has to remember every Valentine's Day when I don't do very well with my Valentine's Day gift. That Jesus is really what she needs, not me. <laughs> Last, last year for Valentine's Day, I got her a necklace that says Jesus is better, just so she would remember, hey, you know, like I'm trying, but Jesus, Jesus is what you really need. As great as Amanda is, she's not Jesus. As great as whatever is that you think you need, that you think you're looking for, that you think you're waiting for, I dare you, I dare you to dive into this book and to dive into this gospel, to Mark, and see who Jesus is and what he's about and see if he isn't more than all of that. And here's, here's the amazing thing. Here's the strange paradox that happens when you make Jesus more than everything else in life. You actually get more of life too. This is the strange paradox with Christ. When you make him more than anything else in your life, it doesn't actually demote everything else. It actually raises it all up. I needed to learn that before I met Amanda. I needed to repent of my misprioritization and trust that God would be enough. And interestingly, it realigned my heart in such a way that we have that I could have a deeper and healthier lasting relationship with Amanda. That I could even see that she was the right one to pursue. I get more because I made her less than Jesus. And she gets more because I made her less than Jesus. So whatever other kingdoms you're pursuing, even if some of those things aren't necessarily bad things, they must come under Christ. If you want more from life, maybe you need to make it a little less. It's not more of this world you've been waiting for. It's more Jesus.